Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing here. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I want to begin this morning by sharing with you a reality that I wish somebody had told me when I began to follow Jesus. If you understand the reality that I'm about to share with you, it will save you a lot of grief, a lot of frustration, and a lot of heartache. Here's the reality. The more who you are in Christ becomes Christ in you, the more you will realize you are engaged in a very real spiritual battle. I'll say that again. The more who you are in Christ. And you know what we mean by that. By that we mean now that we've been born again, we have a new position. We are now in Christ. And all that we are in Christ is true about us positionally. But the more who you are in Christ becomes Christ in you. The more that begins to be worked out in my life on a day in and day out basis, here's the reality. You will realize that you are engaged in a very real spiritual battle. You see, there's a big mistake that we often make. And we think that growing in Christ means the absence of sin in my life. That the more I grow in Christ, the less I have to deal with this thing called sin. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. As we grow in Christ, we do enjoy the opportunity to experience victory in Christ over the sin and over the flesh in our lives. But real growth in Christ does not mean the absence of sin. Real growth in Christ means the presence of an ongoing struggle. And I wish somebody told me that because the longer I followed Jesus and I kept on struggling with stuff in my life, the more I thought I was failing because I still had the struggle. I was looking for what maybe some of you are looking for today. I was looking for deliverance. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes... 
Sometimes God and his Holy Spirit shows up in your life and my life in such a way that what we get to experience is deliverance. But let me just tell you, most of the time, that's not the way it works. We don't get deliverance. Here's what people want when Here's deliverance for most people. I never have to struggle with that again. We'll get that in heaven. If you are living with the expectation of that today, you're going to live frustrated. You're going to often live defeated because growth in Christ's likeness does not, not mean the absence of sin. It means the presence of an ongoing struggle. Deliverance is I never struggle. Victory is God giving me strength to overcome in the midst of the struggle. What you and I have been promised in Christ is not deliverance. I never struggle. What we have been promised is victory that you and I in the moment of struggle and the moment of temptation can live in dependence on the Holy Spirit of God and Christ in us can live through us and give us victory. But here's what that means. Tomorrow, game on again. (laughs) And the same thing that gave you victory today is what will give you victory tomorrow. Let me show it to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which, read the last part out loud with me, wage war against the soul. He's writing to Christians, and not just any group of Christians. In 1 Peter, he's writing to Christians that are facing severe persecution, persecution so severe that they've been scattered all over the region where they used to live. And these Christians, in the midst of persecution, he says, are still battling in a war against the flesh. That little phrase, wage war, it's an interesting Greek term. It means to carry out a long military campaign. Not just a quick little battle. This is no shock and awe moment. This is a long military campaign. Spiros Zodiates is a great Greek scholar. Listen to some of the adjectives he used to describe this military campaign that the flesh wars against us. Relentless, malicious, aggressive. It's our flesh, our unredeemed humanness, our passions, our desires, our ambitions, our learned behaviors and habits from our past. All of that is our flesh. And moment by moment, you and I must choose to be We must choose to yield the control of our lives away from our flesh to the control of the Holy Spirit of God. It's a moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year battle. And if you expect anything but the battle, you will be disillusioned as a follower of Jesus. There's a lot of preaching out there today that says you just pray a little prayer and then everything's going to get better. 
that all God desires for you is health and wealth and prosperity and there's no struggle, there's no battle. Listen, that is a lie. The Bible says a war is being waged by your place. Let me show you how Paul wrote about it in in Galatians chapter 5. Look what he said. Look on the screen. Paul said, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Here's what he's saying. Christ in me longs for holiness. Christ in me longs for righteousness. There's now in every believer a desire for the holiness of God. There's a desire for the righteousness of God. There's a desire for the purity of God. Christ in me desires the truth of God. But every moment of every day, my flesh says over my dead body. There's a war. Christ in me versus my flesh. Now, the war has already been won. But I love the way Major Ian Thomas writes about it. Look at this quote on the screen. The flesh within you has never ceased to love sin. And never will. Given half a chance, it will always manifest its corruption and depravity. This is why the godliest of men still have a latent within them the most terrible potential for evil. It is the godliest of men who know it best, for it is the acknowledgement of this very fact which is the secret of their godliness. They have learned often by bitter experience that the character does not change for the better by improving the flesh, but only by allowing it to be replaced by the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can render its pernicious appetites inoperative. The moment you and I think, I'm past that, you are in trouble. My flesh is as wicked as it has ever been apart from Christ in me. My flesh is capable of everything it has ever desired. My flesh is capable of things I haven't yet even thought of apart from Christ in me. But the joy and the good news today is you don't have to live apart from Christ in you. 
We get to live moment by moment in dependence on His Spirit within us to give us victory over the flesh. And if you think you can will your way through this battle, it's not going to happen. Everything I've said so far has just been set up for where we're going today, all right? Because we are studying as a church family through a series called A Blast from the Past. And this morning we come to 1 Samuel chapters 13, 14, and 15. Yep, we're going to look at three chapters in the Bible. And those of you that have been sitting under my teaching for very long at all, you just panicked when you saw that I'm going to try to tackle three chapters. But see, you got good news. There's another service coming after you. It's the other services that are in real trouble. I got to get you out because they got to come in. But in 1 Samuel, let me set the context for you where we are in 1 Samuel chapter 13, 14, and 15. Saul has now been established as the first king of Israel. Israel had been led by priests, men that heard from God and spoke to the people on behalf of God. But Israel said, God, we don't want your way. We want our way. Pastor Tom talked about some of that in, in when he talked about rebellion. We don't want your way, God. We want our way. And so God gave them over to the desire of their flesh, and he gave them an earthly king, Saul. And Saul, as you look at his life in the Old Testament, is a powerful example of the dangers of walking in the flesh. As you read the life of Saul, you see a man that is conflicted and often dominated by the desires of the flesh. And here's the powerful lesson that we want to unpack today. Look at it on the screen. Walking in the flesh rather than in the spirit robs me of the privilege of being used for God's glory. To kind of set the table, I want to read what I think are two of the saddest verses found anywhere in Scripture. Here's Saul, the king, and we're going to unpack how he got to where we're reading this morning. But I want you to look at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're just going to overview and look at some different verses in these three chapters. But look at verses 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Look at this. Look at this. For now... The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You hear that? Saul, God would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. 
And the Lord has appointed him to rule over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And it's even more tragic than what we just read. What we just read happened in year two of Saul's reign. He reigned 38 more years. Knowing that his whole life had now been put on a shelf. For the ultimate purpose of the glory and honor of God. When I read that, Saul, look what God would have done. It reminded me of a day when I was being discipled by my mentor, Clyde Cranford. And he looked across the desk at me and here's what he said. He said, Vance, you know what the most haunting question of sin is? I said, what? He said this. What might have been had I simply obeyed the Lord? What might have been in Saul's life? Had he simply obeyed the Lord. Not been dominated by his flesh. Shouldn't surprise us. In the New Testament, Romans 8, 8. You know what it says? For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what does it look like? To be walking in the flesh. Well, we cannot, obviously, this morning exhaustively answer that question. But we can pull some examples from Saul's life to see what it looks like if I'm in danger of walking in the flesh. So here are four warning signs that I may be walking in the flesh. Here's the first one. I am impatient with God's timing. Let me show it to you. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan was a leader in Saul's army. Jonathan had just led a portion of Saul's army to attack one of their major enemies, the Philistines. Jonathan had defeated an entire garrison of the Philistines. He destroyed one of their forts. The Philistines were obviously angry about this. The Philistines were mounting a major retaliation against the nation of Israel, and Israel is now panicking over what is coming because they have awakened a giant militarily. Let's pick it up. Chapter 13, verse 6. Look what it says. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait. The word strait is a Hebrew word that means narrowness, tightness, misery. It's a feeling of being hemmed in. They, They saw that things were not going their way. For the people were hard pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. 
Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel, the priest, did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. The word scattering there is a word that's the Hebrew phrase that means to shatter. It's the picture of, of dropping a piece of glass and it just shattering everywhere. Here's what Saul was looking at. He was looking at what was going on and things around him were falling apart. He'd been waiting on the priest to show up. God's word hadn't come yet. He's panicked. Verse 9, look what he said. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering." And the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Say, what's the big deal here? Here's the big deal. Samuel was the priest. Saul was the king. Samuel was the one that God spoke to. And God spoke through Samuel into the life of the king. And Saul and Samuel, if you go back to chapter 10 and read it, they had an agreement together. And here was the agreement. Saul, if you are ever in crisis, if things ever look like they're falling apart, Saul, you get to Gilgal and you wait. And I will meet you there. And when I show up, I will offer the offerings before the Lord, and we together will wait before the Lord, and God's presence will come, and God will guide you. But Saul looked around him, and the circumstances were falling apart. His life didn't seem to be going the way he thought it should, and he got impatient with God's timing. He didn't have time to wait on the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Are things around you falling apart? You in some difficult circumstances? You need to hear God speak. You feel like God's silent? You're growing impatient with God's timing? Let me tell you what the Spirit says. Here's what the Spirit says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. That's what the Spirit says. But let me tell you what the flesh says. Here's what the flesh says. You don't have to wait on God. He must be busy doing something else right now. You know what you need to do in this. Listen, if you don't go ahead and make a decision, you might miss out on a great opportunity. Surely, surely God would not have you miss out on this great 
opportunity that's in front of you. If you don't make a decision, things are only going to get worse. And there's the battle. Am I going to trust? Am I going to wait? Am I going to grow impatient with God's timing? Remember what Paul said in Galatians 5 when he described what it looks like when I'm walking by the Spirit? He said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Well, I'm working on that. (laughs) There's your problem. Listen, my flesh is not and never will be patient. If I'm expecting my patience to get better in my flesh, it's not happening. But the degree to which I yield the control of that to the Holy Spirit of God, and I say, listen, listen, everything in me is wanting to move. I can do it's all I can do to sit here and wait. But I know that you know best. So I'm going to yield the control of that to you. And with David, I'm going to say in Psalm 119, you are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. I know what we're thinking. We're thinking, but I need to hear from God now. Listen, listen, listen. God is never in a hurry. He's never late. Now, he may not be on your timeline, but he's on his. (laughs) His is better. (laughs) Uncertainty is always an invitation to a deeper level of intimacy. Let me say it again. I want you to hear it. Uncertainty is always an invitation to a deeper level of intimacy. Some of you right now are in some circumstances and life has become uncertain. The glass has dropped, it's shattered, it's breaking all around you and you're in the middle of a situation where you need God to show up right now. There's a lot of it. Listen, let me tell you what that, what that uncertainty is. It is God inviting you into a deeper level of intimacy with himself and he's saying to you, you trust me, you wait on me and I will show you something about me you could have never learned without this uncertainty. That's why Blackaby said it this way. We've given you this quote many times, but I want you to see it again in this context. Blackaby said, if you do not have clear instruction from God in a matter, pray and wait. Learn patience. I like that. He didn't say grow patience. He said learn it. Learn it from the Holy Spirit. Depend on God's timing. His timing is always right and best. Hang on right there. Do you believe that? you believe that, say amen. Amen. Hang on now. Did you hear what you just said? I believe God's timing is right and best. If you believe that, why are you impatient? 
Why am I in a hurry? God's timing is right and best. Don't get in a hurry. He may be withholding directions to cause you to seek him more intently. Don't skip over the relationship to get on with the doing. God is more interested in a love relationship with you than he is in what you can do for him. A danger that I'm beginning to walk in the flesh and not by the Spirit as I grow impatient with God's timing. Saul got tired of waiting on God. Let me give you the second warning sign. I'm attempting to accomplish God's will my way. You ever tried to help God? That's what Saul's doing. Look at verse 11. Let's pick it back up. Samuel shows up and said, What have you done? Saul said, well, I saw, I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come in the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, (laughs) this implied to myself. Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. Listen to this. So I forced myself. (laughs) If we were saying that in our vernacular today, here's what that Hebrew phrase really means. So so I took things into my own hand. God had a plan. God had given his instruction. Saul got tired of waiting on God. Let me tell you what happens. When you grow impatient with God's timing, it often leads to the next step of accomplishing God's will your way. Saul got tired of waiting. How many times you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm not sure what God is leading me to do So I'm just going to step out in faith. You ever heard that? (laughs) Ever said that? (laughs) Listen, listen. That's not faith. That's flesh. Let me prove it to you. Look at Romans chapter 10 verse 17. So faith comes from, say it out loud, hearing. And hearing from the word of Here's what that means. Until you've heard from God, it's not faith, it's flesh. You cannot take a step of faith until you hear God speak. Once I've heard God speak, then my response is faith in what he said. If I don't know what God said, for me to take that step is not faith, it is flesh. And even worse, when I know what he said and I do the opposite anyway, I've really moved down this dangerous path of flesh. And let me just tell you something. It will rob you of the opportunity to be used 
for the glory of God. You've heard me tell the story many times of that September 1999 moment when I was in my living room minding my own business in Memphis, Tennessee. Luke chapter 4, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. And God put this call in the heart of mine and my wife. And we said, yes, Lord, whenever, wherever, whatever. Here's a part of the story you may have never heard. Just a few days after we put our yes on the table. There was a church in Memphis, Tennessee where we were living at the time. It had been historically one of the largest churches in the city of Memphis. 30, 40 years ago. But it was in a neighborhood that had transitioned. And now the church that had a 1,500 seat worship center, it had millions of dollars worth of facilities that used to run thousands of people, had dwindled down to running about 100 people. They called me and said, Would you come? We'll give you the facility. We'll give you this church. We'll die as a fellowship. And we'll allow you to rebrand, plant a multicultural church right here in the city of Memphis that's so racially tense and needs a demonstration of that here. If you'll come, the keys are yours. And every, I mean, two or three days earlier, we'd said, Lord, yes. Everything in me, everything in my flesh said, that's it. And the Spirit of God put a check in my soul. And I knew, I knew enough to know if I step past, now don't misunderstand, I, I have in my lifetime stepped past a bunch of them and lived to regret it. In this moment, the Spirit of God gave me the grace to yield to His control. Now, two weeks later, Johnny Hunt comes, tells me about Las Vegas, and God relocates our family here. And here's what I wonder. What would I have missed out on if I'd have tried to accomplish God's will my way? Now, God was doing this with or without me. But you see what I'm saying? Walking by the flesh rather than by the Spirit robs us of the opportunity to be used for God's glory. Let me read it to you from Isaiah chapter 50. One of the versions of Scripture I like to read is the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible kind of explodes some of the grammatical instruction that's in here for the reader. Listen to Isaiah chapter 50, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what it says. Who is among you who reverently fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of His servant, Yet who walks in darkness and deep trouble and has no shining splendor in his heart. He's saying, who's among you that you love the Lord and yet there's some uncertainty? A 
Look what it says. Let him rely on, trust in, and be confident in the name of the Lord. Let him lean upon and be supported by his God. Behold, all you enemies of your own selves who attempt to kindle your own fires and work out your own plans of salvation, who surround and gird yourselves with momentary sparks and darts and firebrands that you set aflame, walk by the light of your self-made fire. Or of the sparks that you have kindled for yourself, if you will. But this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in grief and in torment. You know what happens? We get in those moments of darkness and uncertainty. And we try to build our own fires. God doesn't just have a purpose. God has a plan. And he doesn't need my help. He desires my obedience as I wait and depend on his spirit. Give you the third warning sign. I'm controlled by unguarded emotion. I'm an emotional guy. You can tell that by the way I preach, right? I'm an emotional guy. It's just who I am. We'll be watching extreme home makeover at home, and I'll cry at the end. I'm just an emotional guy. You watch a football game with me. I mean, I'm just an emotional guy. Emotions are not a bad thing. But unguarded. Listen, my emotions get me in trouble. It's an area of my own flesh that I have to guard and have accountability. And it's a battle that I have to deal with all the time. Saul is battling his emotion in chapter 14. Look at verse 23. It says, so the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Bethaven. Here's God again providing for his people another victory they've won, even after what Saul had already gone through. Here they are experiencing God's hand. Look at verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man. Who eats food before evening and until I have avenged myself. You hear the emotion in Saul. Here's God winning battles for his glory. And Saul is consumed with a revenge for himself. We won't spend a lot of time here. But his emotion had become 
unguarded. And here's what that did. It led him to some unwise. As you read chapter 14, there's a lot of unwise decisions. For example, Saul demanded nobody eat. So here they are fighting a battle all day long, having no food in their bodies. And by the end of the day, they're exhausted and they make bad decisions as an army because Saul, in an act of emotion, made an unwise decision. Emotions can cloud our decisions. If you begin to let emotions drive the train, Dallas Willard's a professor of philosophy at USC before he died, but a strong believer. Dallas Willard said emotions are a wonderful servant, but a cruel master. Listen to the way Paul wrote about the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, and listen how many of these expressions of the flesh are simply emotions out of control. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Just the sampling that he gives us, look how much of it is emotion out of control. Is your life consumed by anger? Is your life consumed by jealousy, worry, bitterness? Somebody hurt you and you can't get over it? Fear? Sadness? What is that? That's all the flesh. And if it gets out of control and I unguard it and let it take over, let me tell you what will happen. It can rob me of the opportunity to be used for God's glory. Let me give you the last one. I am justifying partial obedience rather than complete surrender. A warning sign that I'm walking in the flesh is that I've begun to justify partial obedience and explained away why it's okay in my circumstance instead of complete surrender to the will and word of God. We see it in chapter 15. Chapter 15, let me give you the context here. Now they've moved on from the Philistines, and it's the Amalekites that are the enemy of the day. Now, the Amalekites are no new enemy to the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, from the moment they left captivity in Israel, the first... Or, excuse me, in Egypt, the very first enemy of the nation of Israel after the captivity in Egypt was the Amalekites, the first army that came against them. They had been a long-standing enemy that vented hostility towards God and His people. And because of that, the judgment of God had come upon them. Look at chapter 15, verse 3. Look what it says. God speaks to Saul, and He says, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The judgment of God had shown up against the Amalekites. Skip down to verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites. From Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites. 
alive. And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good... And were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, listen to this. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned his back from following me and has has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Here he is making the same mistakes again. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, get this. Blessed are you of the Lord. Here's Saul. Samuel shows up. God's already told him. Saul didn't do what I told him to do. Samuel shows up and Saul comes running out to me. Oh, blessed are you of the Lord. Then look what he said. I have done all. I've carried out all the command of the Lord. Knowing good and well he did not. He's justified it. Then look what it says in verse 14. But Samuel said, uh, what then is this bleeding of sheep? Blessed are you, Samuel. I've carried out all the command. (laughs) See, Saul's talking so loud to cover all that up, hoping Samuel won't hear it. Partial obedience is total disobedience. Have you justified your act of rebellion against God by explaining it away? See, Jeremiah said it this way. Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He uses that word heart to talk about the flesh. My flesh is sick. It will lie. Partial obedience is your flesh lying to you and convincing you that God didn't really mean what he said. Well, I know the Bible says, but... You know what you've just begun to do? Justify partial obedience instead of complete surrender to the will and word of God. Partial obedience is your flesh lying to you and trying to convince you that you know more than God. Well, I know God said to slaughter all the animals, but but these are the best of the best. Surely God didn't mean to slaughter them. We'll just take these home with us. and We'll use these for our sacrifices to the Lord. Business leader, 
you find yourself saying, I, I know the scripture teaches integrity. But you got to understand our day. We just do it different now. Single adult, you find yourself saying, I know God gave us boundaries for physical intimacy in marriage, but, but that's just for high school students. I, I, I'm kind of past that. Partial obedience is your flesh lying and convincing you that if God just knew your situation, He wouldn't really expect you to obey that. If God just knew what you were facing, it's the flesh. It's lying to you, it's deceitful, it's wicked. My flesh will lie to me and say, Oh, Vance, you deserve. Surely God wouldn't. Surely God wouldn't ask. Surely God wouldn't require. So Saul just justified it. Let me close. What do I do if I recognize I'm walking in the flesh? What do I do? Let me show you a verse of Scripture. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. says, if we... Say the next word out loud. You know what the word confess means? It means to say the same thing as. It's really talking about when the Spirit of God shows you an area where you're walking in the flesh. Here's what you do. You don't justify it. You don't explain it away. You just say the same thing about it that God says. And here's what that is. Sin. You're right, God. I'm wrong. You drag it out in front of him and you just get honest. Listen, he already knows. You're not hiding it. You can come out and bless the Lord all day long. Try to cover it up. But the scripture says we're to confess. You know what needs to happen this morning? Some of us need to take some areas of our flesh and just get honest with God about it. Call it what it is. And then he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful to what? Forgive. He's not only faithful, he's righteous in doing so. Here's what I love about that. People say all the time, did you ask God to forgive you? Did you know that as a Christian, you don't have to? He already has. What this says is, I'm to confess it and embrace God's forgiveness. It's already done. My forgiveness has already been purchased in Christ. What I'm doing in that moment of confession is I'm simply appropriating to my life that which has already been given me through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I've already been forgiven, and I'm getting honest with God, and I'm embracing the forgiveness of God in my life. So you confess, you embrace God's forgiveness, and then here's the third thing. You yield the control. 
back to the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me show it to you in a verse. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Look what he says here. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He's talking about your flesh here. Don't let your flesh have its way so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin, the flesh, shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Here's what that looks like. Maybe it's this issue of unguarded emotion. God, I confess, Lord, that I've allowed this emotion of bitterness or jealousy or anger to get out of control. But God, I'm honest. And Lord, I embrace your forgiveness. And right now, God, I present my emotion to you as an instrument no longer to be used by my flesh. But I give it to you as an instrument to be used for your righteousness by the control of your Holy Spirit. And 30 minutes later, when it creeps up again, you do it again. Now, here's what victory begins to look like. Victory begins to look like sometimes the length of time in between those moments of surrender gets a little bit longer. But let me just tell you, the moments of surrender still have to happen. Maybe it's this justifying of partial obedience. God, I'm going to call it what it is today. I've tried to justify my rebellion. And I want to drag it out in front of you and say, Lord, it's yours. God, I confess it. It's rebellion against you. Doesn't matter what my situation or circumstance is. I don't have the right nor the authority to violate your word. God, I bring it in front of you and I, I lay it in front of you and I embrace your forgiveness. And in repentance, I surrender that area of my life. I yield to the control of the Holy Spirit of God. One final quote by Major Ian Thomas. He said, For your own spiritual well-being, it's absolutely imperative that you recognize the fact that this old nature will never change its character. All the wickedness of which it is capable today, it will be capable of tomorrow or 50 years from now if you are still alive. The flesh within you then will be as wicked as the flesh within you today, and there's absolutely no salvageable content within it. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Every day we should begin in the morning. God, today I lay on the altar my eyes, my ears, my mind, my hands, my feet, my body, my emotions, my will. God, I lay it on the altar today to surrender it to you, understanding that my flesh will mess it up today. But by the power of your Holy Spirit today, I can experience victory. I die daily.